Father, as we come before your word now, we pray that you would speak to us, help us to grow in our knowledge and our love of you. And Father, please challenge us to live for you and to have a ministry that glorifies your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come back with me to the end of 1999. Uh, There I was at the Pacific Solar Christmas Party. A month or so earlier, I'd announced my intention to uh, finish up my engineering job at the solar research company uh, and do a Christian ministry traineeship. So at the party, my wife and I were talking with Charlene. It's not her real name. Charlene is a friend and colleague. She'd had maybe one too many strawberry daiquiris. (laughs) And she was trying to fathom my bizarre decision. You could almost hear the wheels of her mind turning. Why on earth would this guy choose to give up this lucrative, promising career to do this Christian ministry thing? It couldn't be the money. It certainly wasn't the fame. So she said to me, well, it must make you happy and fulfilled. And I had to say, well, actually, no. Um, I mean, yes, it's happy, it's fulfilling, but I'd probably be happier and more fulfilled working as a solar engineer. I love my job. But I'm doing this because people need to hear about Jesus. And I think I can tell them. And as Charlene stirred her strawberry daiquiri and walked away, she said, well, as long as it makes you happy. (laughs) Why are you doing this crazy Christian ministry thing? What's the point? What's the goal? You need to know why you're doing it, don't you? If you know the goal, if you know the point of it, then you can make the sacrifices and you can do all the hard work of preparation and you can keep going over the long haul. If you know why you're doing it, it can help you to navigate all of the complexities of life and ministry day by day amongst all of the pragmatics and the advice and the struggles of ministry. You need to know the why of ministry. That's why you need deep and strong theology. You need to apply that theology to your life and to your ministry. Paul's letter to the Romans goes to the heart of that question, the question of why. Romans is about the gospel. And when I say that, I mean Romans is about the truth of the gospel and Romans is about the ministry of the gospel. The beauty of Romans is that theology and ministry are wrapped up together. Paul starts talking about ministry. He finishes talking about ministry, his own ministry and the ministry of others. And within the letter, interwoven with profound truths about the gospel, are profound truths about the ministry of the gospel, particularly as Paul talks about the ministry of Jews to Gentiles, Israel to the nations. And this morning I'd like to take you to a neglected passage in Romans. commentator called it one of the most ignored passages in the New Testament. And this passage, I want to say, is primarily about the ministry of the gospel. Well, actually, it's about the opposite of the ministry of the gospel. It's the second half of Romans chapter 2, and Paul here gives us a failed vision of ministry. It's a ministry based on a wrong theology. It's a ministry based on a wrong why. And this is enormously valuable for us because this ministry failure warns us and rebukes us and teaches us, by contrast, what true ministry is looks like. Now Paul so far in Romans has been laying out the gospel he preaches. Paul's ministry is to proclaim the risen Lord Jesus. 
the Lord of all, the gospel of God, the hope of the nations. And Paul's great aim is to see God's name honoured among all the nations. That's his aim, chapter 1, verse 5, through the obedience of faith. So he proclaims the gospel. The gospel is God's power of salvation to all who believe and in it God reveals a righteousness that is by faith. And we need this salvation and righteousness, says Paul, because all humans are sinners under God's judgment. And in the first half of chapter 2, Paul has spoken about God's judgment of all humanity. He's he's insisted that you can't be saved uh, from God's judgment by knowledge alone, not, not even knowing God's written law will save you because being Jewish won't save you by itself because it's not enough just to know what's right. You need to do what's right, which is true for all humanity, Jew or Gentile. And here in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul has something further to say. It's connected to what he's just said about sin and judgment, but it's not just a repetition It's not just like he's saying the same thing but in a more obscure way, which is often the way it's taken. In this passage, Paul stops describing his conversation partner as a human being standing before God and he starts describing him as a Jewish person with a ministry to others. He moves from the vertical to the horizontal and he describes a particular Jewish vision of ministry. It's a ministry that's reasonable, attractive and fulfilling. I'll read verses 17 to 20. Now, if you're named a Jew and rest on the law and express pride in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you're convinced that you yourself are a guide for the blind, a light for those in darkness, an educator of fools, a teacher of infants, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. That's actually my own translation, but it's very close to the older King James Version. Unfortunately, I think a lot of modern translations have changed words around and make it sound like Paul's just teasing his Jewish conversation partner and painting him as a horrible, pretentious bigot that nobody could agree with. But no, Paul is talking about a very common ancient Jewish understanding of ministry. You can read about it in Jewish books like The Wisdom of Ben Sirah and The Letter of Aristeas. And in this view, Jews, Jews who know the law well, they see themselves as wise educators of the world. It's got links, some links to Deuteronomy chapter 4 where Moses says, keep the law which will be your wisdom in the sight of all the peoples. But it goes beyond Deuteronomy because it focuses on the individual teacher, the wise man, the scribe, the Jew whose wisdom is famed throughout the world. Few quotes from Ben Sirah. He devotes himself to the study of the law of the Most High, will seek out the wisdom of all the ancients. He will serve among great men and appear before rulers. He tests the good and evil among men. He will enlighten education in his teaching and will express pride in the law of the Lord's covenant. That's the view of ministry that Paul's laying out here in Romans 2. The teacher of the law, the Jewish teacher of the law, the famed educator of the world. And on the face of it, This is quite a reasonable view of ministry, isn't it? It offers a straightforward solution to humanity's basic problems. Humans, says Paul in chapter 1, are foolish, darkened, idolatrous sinners. But God's law, God's word, gives wisdom. And God's law, God's word, teaches us how to obey God and worship God. And what darkened humanity needs is enlightenment. Education is the answer. 
In fact, the educator is the answer. What the world needs is a guide for the blind, a light for those in darkness, somebody who knows God's word and can properly contextualise it for the modern situation, well, the first century, modern situation and the world at large. This is the vision and it's reasonable and it's theological too, isn't it? Because it's not just human wisdom we're talking about here, it's God's law, God's word that makes you wise and it's attractive because it scratches where people itch. The world seeks wisdom for life. God gives wisdom for life. God's law gives you wisdom for life. The educator is the answer. It's fulfilling because if you're the educator, you'll be renowned. You'll be known as the Jew, known, named as the Jew, the wise one. I want you to see how attractive this view of ministry is because it's not just a first century view, is it? What's your vision of your own future ministry? And do you see yourself as an educator wisely demonstrating how good and wonderful God's word and God's ways are to those around you to bring about human flourishing in your community? Don't you wish, don't you wish you could just be in a position where the opinion shapers of this nation took you seriously and listened to you and gave you a seat at the table? Don't you wish you could be just so skilled at speaking or writing, that everyone would stop being stupidly offended at, at Instagram posts and trigger words and listened to your nuanced argumentation and respected your wisdom. And even if they agree to disagree, at least they praise your wisdom and grace and they would say, oh yes, that X is so wise, where X is your name. <laughs> or maybe your vision isn't quite so grand. Maybe you just want to be the great... Christian teacher, educating, enlightening, writing books, helping the saints to see how the Bible all fits together, running courses in biblical theology to teach and educate and train, being known as a wise and renowned lecturer in Old Testament or New Testament or theology or ethics or whatever it is. What's wrong with this picture of ministry? There's something missing. There's no gospel. There's no gospel. There's no grasp of what it really means to be human before God. No understanding of what Paul has already laid out in Romans. Because the problem that Paul has laid out is far worse than we might think. Humans aren't just uneducated. We are sinners. We're unrighteous. We're ungodly. We're under God's judgment. And Paul's already said, knowledge from the law doesn't bring enlightened morality Knowledge from the law brings God's judgment into sharper focus by itself. But there's something worse because this ministry shames God. Verse 21. Well then, you who teach others, you do not teach yourself. You who preach not to steal, you steal. You who say not to commit adultery, you commit adultery. You who are disgusted at idols... You commit temple robbery. What's going on here? These are very specific charges, actually, from Paul. Um, they're not typical Jewish sins. I don't think Paul is just doing, bringing these up to prove that Jews are sinners. He's already done that, really. What he's doing here is something more specific. He's attacking this particular vision of ministry. Uh, brief background, I think he's likely referring to a very well-known scandalous story about a bunch of Jewish 
wisdom law teachers in Rome. It was an infamous scandal. Uh, These Jewish law wisdom teachers, as they were known, had weaseled their way into the affections of a Roman noblewoman. They convinced her to give money for the temple in Jerusalem and then they'd taken off with the funds. And this story was actually hot gossip in Rome for decades. It was a story of theft, whispers of a salacious sex scandal and religious corruption. And it seems to have been a typical meme for Romans when they heard about Jewish wisdom teachers. Ah, yeah, well, we know what Jewish wisdom teachers all get up to, don't we? It was a stereotype. But I think that's why Paul's referring to it. Because the fact that the stereotype was there showed the whole idea of law wisdom ministry had nothing to do with reality. Come on, says Paul. Listen to the cold, hard light of public opinion. No one in Rome is listening to you, wisdom teachers. As Paul has already said, proclaiming the law is not enough. It's the gospel they need to proclaim, the gospel that that declares that we are sinners under God's judgment, that silences us and brings us to our knees and brings us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. But if they were just proclaiming how to live well and prosper, well, that's not working, says Paul. And friends, if that's your message, it'll never work because there'll always be contradictions to that message. There will always be religious leaders who don't live up to the ideals they proclaim. There will always be scandals and failure, but something even worse. Verse 23, you who take pride in the law, by transgressing the law, you shame God. For the name of God through you is slandered among the nations, just as it is written. This law wisdom ministry had shamed God among the nations because it massively overpromised and underdelivered. And it had overpromised this enlightenment in the name of Israel's God. So every time any teacher failed to live up to that promise, God was slandered and shamed. God's name dragged through the mud, which in so many ways is actually the history of Israel, just as it is written. Brothers and sisters, in this hostile world, there really is a temptation for us to focus our time on energy and energy in the kind of ministry that Paul lays out here. To focus so much on apologetics that we forget the point of apologetics, which is evangelism. Or to just end up preaching the goodness of Christianity rather than the glory of Christ. To think that your goal is to convince people that Christianity is a good way to live and really Christians aren't so bad. Or that Christianity makes you the very best version of yourself you can possibly be or however you want to describe it, whatever you're trying to do. The thing is it seems reasonable, it's attractive, it's fulfilling. But Paul gives a dose of reality to that enterprise. And let's pop our heads outside of our own social media bubble for a while and see how a Christian moral teacher is really seen in our world. You preach the message Christianity uh, is about being a good person and you say that to the average Aussie and what's the answer? Look at the priests. Look at the pedophilia. Look at the abuse. Look at the scandals. And is that unfair? Well, yes, it is unfair, actually, because on average, following God's way does make a real difference to our lives and the Holy Spirit does actually change us and there are statistics that can show that, but the statistics are not the gospel. 
And if your gospel is just be a Christian because Christians are good people, that message will always be judged on its own terms and it will always fail. And even worse, you will slander God. In fact, this ministry ultimately helps no one. Here's verses 25 to 27. Circumcision would be helpful if you practised the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So then if the uncircumcision keeps the requirements of the law, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And won't this natural uncircumcision who keeps the law judge you, you who by having the letter in circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Now there's some logic here going on about circumcision. You ask me about the details later if you like. I won't go into the details but here's the gist. Circumcision marks Jews out from Gentiles. It was the great sign of being God's special person a law-keeping person. That's what it was. Now, if, and it's a big if, if Jews and their teachers in Rome and elsewhere and everyone had all kept the law really well and had all been morally upright, then their Jewish distinctiveness would have been a valuable and helpful thing because it would have brought about the honour of God's name among the Gentiles. It would have shown the Gentiles a clear working example that God's law is good and that God's word works and it would have proved that Israel's God is worth following, but that wasn't the reality, was it? Jews broke the law. Not always, not in every way, but often enough, sometimes Jewish teachers, sometimes notoriously badly. On the flip side, there were Gentiles who'd heard the law and kept it at the basic moral level without even being physically circumcised. So in reality, Jewish distinctiveness wasn't a helpful or valuable thing for anyone. But worse... Circumcision was a liability to God's glory because whenever a circumcised person, especially a teacher, broke the law, their circumcision made the situation worse because it dragged God's name into the picture and through the mud. Their circumcision made them targets. These people, clearly bound to the letter of the law, became primed work examples that God's law didn't work, exhibit A, and that God wasn't worth following. And all you ended up was with Gentiles judging Jews for breaking the very law that they were proud of owning. This ministry was a failure. Why is Paul saying all this? Well, there's two reasons. On the one hand, he's actually showing up the failure of Israel, which in the end is a great illustration that we're all failures and that God's judgment is just and that we all need a saviour, Jesus Christ, and justification by faith in him, which is his point in the next chapter. But more immediately... This failed ministry helps us to see what true gospel ministry looks like. By contrast, Paul's own ministry in Romans, as you read it, you see that it is the answer at every point to this failed ministry. What's Paul's goal? Not to enlighten the world through education, but to bring salvation to lost souls through proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead and to teach and establish people in lives that lived out the truth of that gospel through the Holy Spirit, which is such a joy and a privilege and is powerful and, as Paul says at the end of Romans, leads to the honour of God's name among the nations, praise and glory. Paul preaches a gospel not of education, but of justification in the midst of condemnation, a gospel that brings us to our knees 
and raises us to live. And this is a gospel that truly changes hearts and minds and lives on the ground in reality. But it may never be approved or applauded as wise by the world and enlightened. But that doesn't matter. Paul's gospel truly brings honour, not shame, to God's name among the nations. So why are you doing this crazy Christian ministry thing? Why are you doing it? Now, don't get me wrong, you need to know your Bible really well. And you need to be able to teach the Bible. And that's your bread and butter, teaching the Bible. And you need to have a deep grasp of theology that underlies everything. But why? Why? What are your plans and dreams and visions for your life and ministry as you do these things? I want to ask you now, are those plans and dreams and visions centred on the gospel of Jesus Christ or on something else? No, actually, I want to ask you something more. Are your dreams driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ? or by something else. Actually, I want to ask you something even more. Are they shaped in every area by the gospel of Jesus Christ? And more than that, will you make every possible effort to ensure your life and ministry is critiqued and transformed by the glorious and profound truths about God in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Here at college, all the Bible and theology you're learning, it really matters. You need it. But remember, it's not just a set of skills or a sort of a package of information that you can bundle up and then deliver. No, it's truth. And it's truth that deeply impacts every area of your life, including and, in fact, especially your ministry. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we praise you that it is your power for the salvation of those who believe. Father, help us, rebuke us, equip us to be those who proclaim the gospel and give us that sense of your goodness and power in the Lord Jesus Christ that we may continue to live for you and know why. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.